This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX is clipped. Now streaming only on Hulu. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Morteza Hajizadeh from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I'm honored to be speaking to Professor Len Nehoff and Professor Thomas Solomon about a wonderful book they published with Cambridge University Press called Free Speech from Core Values to Current Debates, which was published in 2022. Dr. Len Nioff is a professor from practice at University of Michigan, and Dr. Thomas Sullivan is President Emeritus and Professor of Political Science at Vermont University. Len and Thomas, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you for having us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, before we start this uh, interview and talking about the book, can you please tell our listeners a little about yourself, your background, and your uh, expertise? Lynn, you want to go first? Well, sure, Tom. Thank you. So um, I'm a professor at the University of Michigan Law School. That's my full-time gig. Uh, <laughs> and uh, in that capacity, I teach classes in First Amendment, uh, media law, and also a small seminar in the history of banned books. Um, I've also been a practicing First Amendment and media lawyer for uh, almost 40 years, uh, and I've represented numerous newspapers, broadcasters, and online entities in dozens of First Amendment cases. So I'm both a First Amendment uh, theorist and a First Amendment practitioner. And um, I am now um, President Emeritus, as you mentioned, of the University of Vermont and a professor of law and political science. Um, um, I was a law school dean at the University of Minnesota, the University of Arizona, and associate dean of the law school at Washington University in St. Louis. And I hate, uh, presently, as a full-time faculty member, teach uh, a seminar uh, each semester on free speech. Um, and I also um, teach constitutional history and constitutional law to undergraduate students at the university. And I have been uh, in the academy for 44 years, teaching, writing, publishing, and 30 of those years I was uh, in higher education administration. Thank you both for this introduction. Um, free speech from COLA is the current debate. I can't think of any topic that is more important nowadays than free speech, and uh, especially in the past, uh, let's say five or six years, maybe the idea of free speech and that thin line between free speech or hate mongering. These are some of the topics we'll be talking about. But before that, why did, why did you decide to write a book about free speech? And what did you hope to achieve by writing this book? Um, maybe, Tom, we should start with you. Sure. Thank you. Well, uh, the University of Vermont every year puts on a conference, a national conference on legal issues in higher education. And each year uh, recently, there's always been a panel uh, on free speech for obvious reasons that it's a very contentious issue on American university campuses. 
Uh, and several years ago, a couple years before the book was published, uh, Len and I were on that free speech panel together. And after it was over, it was pretty clear that we had some similar views and, and, and a good deal of passion around this topic. Uh, I had already started to think about a book on free speech and had been working on an outline and kind of framing chapters. So I asked Lynn, let's have a, a chat after uh, we're done with our s speeches and the panel. And, um, and we began to talk about doing the book together. And rather quickly, I think, uh, uh, Lynn, we decided we would join together for this book, and um, the title went through a bit of an evolution over time uh, uh, with conversations with our publisher, Cambridge University Press, but I think uh, it came out very aptly, um, free speech, uh, core values, and current debates. Yeah, I think I think um, that's a, a very much how, how it unfolded, very sort of naturally and organically. The one thing I would say is that one of the issues that, or that I would add, is that I think one of the issues that Tom and I both saw in the, and, and a concern that we shared is I think both of us felt that conversations about free speech uh, in the public domain tended to be relatively superficial and uninformed. And one of our goals was to write a book that would be on one hand, a scholarly book, would make a legitimate contribution to um, the scholarly corpus of, of work around First Amendment, but that also would just help raise the level of dialogue publicly uh, about uh, free speech. Um, and one of the things we tried to do is write a book that uh, a, a specialist can read and, and learn something from, but also any intelligent non-specialist can read, um, non-lawyers can read, and really understand a great deal more about free speech as a result. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I really related with that. I don't have any background in law. My background is in literature, but I'm interested in topics uh, about free speech. I'm interested in political issues. And I found myself learning a lot about this, uh, about the, uh, some, some legal cases in the United States, the idea of free speech and some of the subtleties and uh, let's say complications associated with it. And I think it's a perfect segue what you just said into my next question, which is, uh, you, you talk about a famous uh, Supreme Court case, the case of Snyder versus Phelps. It, it would be great if we could talk about the case and tell us what it shows about court's view about speech. Uh, Len, you want to have a go at this question? Sure. Um, before I do, let me thank you for picking the book up and reading it and uh, <laughs> and showing us to be right that uh, that people who are non-specialists can 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 uh, learn more about this field. So Snyder is a really interesting case. It was a case that involves speech by a group called the Westboro Baptist Church. And although Westboro calls itself a church, in many ways, it's essentially uh, a hate group. Um, it believes that the deaths of American soldiers are the result of God's judgment against our country uh, because of its tolerance of homosexuality. And so uh, to express their views, Westboro members picket at the funerals of American soldiers who were killed in combat. And when they do so, they usually carry signs that display messages that are, are deeply offensive. They're homophobic, they condemn gays, they celebrate the deaths of members of the American military. By anyone's standards, they're pretty outrageous and offensive signs. What happened in this case is um, Albert Snyder, who was the father of a young man who had been killed in service, uh, Matthew Snyder, sued Fred Phelps, who is the head of the Westboro Baptist Church and the Westboro Baptist Church for picketing at his son's funeral. And his primary theory was that when Westboro did this, when they engaged in this speech, um, it inflicted emotional distress on Albert Snyder, the father, and on the entire Snyder uh, family. What's striking about the case is that the Supreme Court had nothing good to say about Westboro's speech. Uh, the court recognized that it was almost certainly without value, that it contributed nothing to what we First Amendment lawyers like to call the marketplace of ideas. But the court nevertheless found the speech to be protected by the First Amendment. And the court's reasoning was that Westboro's speech related to religious and political beliefs, um, that speech related to those kinds of subjects is right at the core of First Amendment protection. And the court found that speech didn't lose that protection just because many people, maybe even most people, maybe even all people, would find the speech outrageous and offensive. So it's an important case because 
it shows us just how broad the protection for free speech is in the United States. Uh, the First Amendment protects speech even when it has little or no value, according to many people, even when it's deeply hurtful, even when its target is very sympathetic, as the Snyder family certainly was, even when the speaker is singularly unappealing, as the Westboro Baptist Church certainly is. Um, now, the First Amendment doesn't give you the right to say anything you want. There are limits, and we'll be talking about some of those today, I'm sure. But Snyder demonstrates the really stunning breadth of our right to speak under the First Amendment. <laughs> and that raises lots of interesting questions. And obviously, the principal question is, why do we do that? Why do we afford such incredibly comprehensive uh, protection to speech? And those are among the kinds of questions that our book uh, tries to set out to answer and to help readers understand. And, and talking about uh, free speech and First Amendment, so Tom, I'd like to ask you this question. Has the Supreme Court recognized or attached any exception to hate speech? And if so, what challenges are affiliated with this? Well, following on what Len just said in, in terms of the, of the case that he just uh, summarized, it's clear from that case and many previous cases that the Supreme Court does not recognize hate speech as an exception. Uh, to say that in other words, today in the United States, hate speech is a protected form of speech. And obviously that holding is highly controversial to, to many people. Um, and Lynn um, noted, uh, and I think it's important to kind of mention uh, what is hate speech, because each of us may have a different definition of that, uh, depending upon um, our viewpoints. Um, and the court is, is often said, as, as Lynn mentioned, that hate speech uh, uh, it offends and, it's, and insults, even in very severe uh, derogatory ways. Uh, it can encourage violence. Uh, to take uh, Justice Douglas's um, aphorism in 1949, it can stir people to anger, um, certainly can stir prejudice, uh, stir people to action. Uh, it can promote vile and hatred uh, and disgust. But nevertheless, our Supreme Court today has said that it is not an exception uh, to um, the protections of uh, free speech, and it comes within the full uh, the full panoply of those rights as the court has defined them. There are challenges, of course, to this uh, approach that the court has taken. Um, and if the court were to try to or think about changing it, which they have opined they are not going to, uh, the court, as Lynn and I will discuss uh, more thoroughly, um, the court has really moved um, in a direction where it's almost a per se or absolutist approach. Some people might say almost a libertarian approach, a categorical or classification that free speech is the marketplace of ideas. Robustness even is distasteful. Um, and they have over time carved out four exceptions, but they're now quite clear in the force of their um, opinions to say that the challenges they face by changing the absoluteness, admitting four exceptions, is really the slippery slope problem. How many exceptions can we have before it swallows the, the underlying principle? Um, and uh, as Justice Douglas uh, also said in an early decision, uh, it could lead to standardization uh, of ideas by the government, uh, the very thing, of course, which is abhorrent to the First Amendment, or by dominant uh, groups, uh, those in control, whether they be a political party or maybe the tyranny of the majority of the government. It's also um, a, a challenge to really define some of these meanings because each person may have a different impression or notion about what it actually means, what the words actually mean. And uh, what we know is the court is very concerned through these cases we discuss in the book about government getting involved in content-based decision-making or viewpoint discrimination, 
um, other issues of vagueness of the terms used in any regulation or legislation, or the overbreathness, sweeping too broadly to cover issues that were not intended. Um, and then, of course, you get into the challenge of uh, how do you police this and who police it and, and what tyranny is trying to impose its will through speech regulation on, on the larger society. Um, so I, I think those are the challenges that we see if the court were to think about changing its uh, broad definition of the marketplace of ideas and its very narrow interpretation of the four exceptions. One, uh, uh, and they are, uh, by, by the way, uh, a defamation or slander, obscenity, uh, speech incident to a crime, and then uh, the fourth is uh, what's called now a true threat it's kind of morphed from the clear and present danger standard or the fighting words standard. In fact, we have a case that was just decided uh, this June by the Supreme Court articulating more clearly what the standard for a truth th uh, threat is. That was a criminal case. So they got into uh, an evaluation of what level or standard of intent is required um, in order to find a person guilty of a crime uh, or being protected under the First Amendment. Um, and uh, and, and uh, just to go back again on what Len said when he was talking about Snyder and Phelps' case, I'm thinking, and you also mentioned, um, Tom, that um, uh, the issue of interpretation of that hate speech. If I, for example, wear a T-shirt with a swastika on it or any other symbol that could be offensive to Jews, Muslims, or LGBTQI community, where do we draw that line between hate speech and discrimination? Can I can I just wear such a T-shirt, for example, and walk on Fifth Avenue in New York <laughs> under well, the pretense uh, of free speech? It's a broad question, and the answer may be uh, everyone sharing a different viewpoint. However, I think uh, from the, the, the weight and the body of the cases from the Supreme Court, the trend line is clear that given your question, uh, could could the government make it a crime to, to wear that T-shirt or to uh, whether a swastika or a Confederate flag or any other symbol that might be provocative in, in, uh, in that way? Um, I think the court would find real difficulty in upholding the, the criminal statute, and they would probably find free speech protection. Again, going back to the concern that the Supreme Court has expressed, is it a content-based regulation? Is it is, is it a viewpoint by the government? Um, uh, is it vague, uh, so vague that we quite can't understand what the statute or regulation is saying? Does it sweep too broadly over breadth? Uh, those are kind of due process concerns as well as First Amendment concerns. Uh, but the court would characterize that T-shirt or that flag as probably symbolic speech and we have an early case in 1969, Tinker versus uh, School in, in Des Moines, uh, that speaks to that very question. Um, um, and uh, and I think to your point, um, the court would probably find that criminal statute unconstitutional as infringing First Amendment speech rights. Ah, and I'm thinking about that because I live in Australia myself, and about two months ago there was this march by a very small group of extremists, and they did the Nazi salute. And um, I guess within a week, the Victorian Parliament, the state of Victoria in Australia, banned the banned the Nazi salute. So they made it illegal, and they banned, I guess, the commercial sales of Nazi symbols. They had exception, which was the use of those symbols in academia for educational purposes which is something we'll talk about again, free speech in academia soon. Uh, and I'm just curious myself to know how that could be upheld or if there's going to be some sort of an exception, because I know the, 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 the legality of it would be very difficult in some cases. Len, do you want to talk about this? Uh, sure, sure. The, uh, um, so it's actually, it's actually not uncommon um, for a country other than the United States to have laws that ban the use of certain symbols. Um, it could be a, a swastika, or it could be a Nazi salute. It could be some other form of fascist symbol, or some other flag or symbol that's that's politically um, highly toxic or charged uh, for purposes of that society. 
um, Germany has um, has laws uh, severely restricting uh, the use of that type of um, symbolism. Um, in the United States, we've taken a different approach. The approach is, um, and I think here for your for these purposes, it's the, probably the best example is um, when a group of neo Nazis wanted to march in Skokie, Illinois, uh, <laughs> which was a community uh, where there was a large population of Holocaust survivors. And so there was no question that these neo-Nazis had specifically chosen Skokie as the most provocative place where they could march. And there's really no question that, you know, what they were doing didn't add to the marketplace of ideas or uh, add anything to political debate um, in our country. But our approach to it is uh, really, as, Mar as, uh, as Thomas suggested, um, the marketplace of ideas. Um, it may be an odious idea, but bring it into the marketplace and people can assess it and they're free to reject it. Um, Lee Bollinger, who uh, taught at the University of Michigan for many years and is now uh, the president of Columbia, um, wrote a really wonderful book called The Tolerant Society, uh, in which he argued that actually speech like that does serve a purpose. Uh, it helps us become better at moderating our reactions to uh, speech that we find outrageous and offensive. That if we try to bury it, if we try to suppress it, we actually become less good at figuring out how to deal with the speech that really offends us and ideas that really offend us. And we become less good at arguing that uh, the speech is not, is not valid or not valuable. So um, different countries have taken different uh, approaches. And I think people from other countries are often stunned uh, at our approach um, because on its face, it may not necessarily make sense to say we're going to have all ideas welcomed into the marketplace and trust in people to pick out the good ones because frankly, people don't always do that. Um, but um, but it's, the, uh, it's the path we've taken and uh, Justice uh, Holmes has a wonderful statement in his opinion in the Abrams case where he sort of shrugs and says, it's an experiment as all life is an experiment. And so uh, different countries run different protocols of the experiment and this is the one we're running. Uh, the, again, the, the internet has also kind of highlighted the topic of free speech a lot. And uh, there's almost always someone somewhere that says big uh, corporates like Google, Facebook, Twitter have censored my tweet or my post. Uh, and, and we know that they have their own algorithms that project information in some kind of a desired manner. But, but does that censorship through these big organizations constitute a violation of First Amendment? Tom, well, maybe. Let me try you, to answer that. Yeah. Um, uh, your question goes to a, a, a private company, uh, Internet platforms, uh, Google, uh, Facebook, Twitter. Um, and I think your your question uh, is, um, can those private platforms censor uh, who's on the platform or what the content of that uh, platform speech might be? Uh, and what the First Amendment has to say about that? Well, it turns out that a point we should make clearly is the First Amendment is an injunction against the government interfering with speech, federal, state, local government. The hypothetical we're discussing here is a private entity, a private internet uh, platform. And so the, the First Amendment doesn't directly have anything to say about that or control that. It has to be a government entity that is doing the suppression or the censoring. Um, uh, so yes, so we haven't had an example in our country where Twitter um, through the president of the United States off its platform because they uh, apparently found that uh, some of his speech uh, was uh, offensive enough uh, that it violated their own standards. There was a big uproar in the United States about, oh, Twitter is censoring the president of the United States. This is a gross violation of the First Amendment. The answer is no, the First Amendment does not cover that. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all of these private platforms are not subject to the First Amendment speech restrictions, and they have their own First Amendment rights as well. 
as a private corporation. Um, so, um, and that of course is one of our major problems today uh, because they are private, because the First Amendment doesn't speak or control their conduct. Uh, we leave it up to their uh, self-determination as to what they let on or what they censor and take off. That creates a, a, a lot of ire. Um, and we have actually a chapter in the book, as you know, on the everyday uh, First Amendment, which spills over into values and norms and community, community and society's um, uh, desires. Um, but the, the direct answer is no, the First Amendment mm -hmm is not violated by the private platforms and their regulations. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that chapter because that was the next question. And, um, and I'm really keen for Len to talk about that because I had no idea what that meant. The everyday <laughs> first amendment. What do you mean by that, Len? So as Tom just suggested, um, the, the first amendment only limits government power to punish speech. So it doesn't limit the power of private entities to do it. And in fact, private entities punish speech all the time. Let me give you a straightforward example. If you work for General Motors and you go around making negative statements about the safety of GM cars, the First Amendment doesn't prohibit GM from firing you. GM is a private corporation. First Amendment doesn't apply to it. Um, and so it can, um, under the First Amendment, take that action if it, if it wants to do so. Um, the phenomenon that Tom and I call the everyday First Amendment in the book refers to the tendency of people, that is, the tendency of non-lawyers, to think that the First Amendment applies when actually it doesn't. So an example we give in the book is that of the football player Colin Kaepernick. And I don't know how familiar you are with this with this controversy, but Colin Kaepernick was a a uh, professional football player um, who uh, wanted to do an act of engage in an act of protest against police violence uh, against minorities that was going on in the United States. And so he began a practice of taking a knee during the national anthem at uh, football games. Well, while that was going on, a lot of people in the country, lots of people who I talked to, who were non-lawyers would say to me, well, Colin Kaepernick has a First Amendment right to do that. But of course, if anybody was going to tell Colin Kaepernick not to do it, it wasn't going to be the government. It was going to be the NFL, which is a private entity, or it was going to be the team, which is a private entity, or it was going to be the head of the team or the coach of the team who are private individuals. So it was really technically wrong to say that Colin Kaepernick's conduct raised a First Amendment issue, it didn't. But people had the sense that it did. People thought that it somehow implicated um, the First Amendment. Now, one way to think about that is just to sort of shrug and say, well, all that shows is that people who don't have legal training don't know that the First Amendment doesn't apply in this case. Um, and that, that, that may be partially true. But we don't think that it fully explains what's going on here. And this is what we explain, the ideas we explore um, in the book. In our, day, in our view, what the everyday First Amendment shows, that is what, what is shown by this tendency of people to think that the First Amendment applies when it really doesn't, is that people don't just see freedom of speech as a legal principle. They see it as a moral principle. That is, we, we often apply freedom of speech concepts when the law doesn't actually require us to do so because we think it's the right thing to do. Our view of free expression as a core value extends beyond whatever the First Amendment specifically protects uh, or means. <clears throat> and that's a really useful concept because <clears throat> I think sometimes when we're arguing over free speech, people tend to tilt the conversation as if it's a conversation about the law. Well, it might be, but it might also be a conversation about morality, or it might alternatively be a conversation about morality. If I, as a parent, never let my child say anything in my presence, that child doesn't have a First Amendment objection. I'm not the government when I do that. 
but surely I'm behaving in an immoral and wrong way. And so conversations about free speech really are, are very often moral conversations just as much as they are legal conversations. And I think it's important for people to know that. Also, this fact ends up changing the law in some ways. So for example, it might be the case that if you work for General Motors and you start complaining about the safety of their vehicles, it might be that the First Amendment doesn't protect you. But if we think you should be protected, maybe we will pass a law that does protect you apart from the First Amendment. And in fact, that's exactly what we've done in the United States. We've protected, we've adopted whistleblower laws that protect employees who want to raise safety concerns about the products manufactured by the companies where they work. And we did that in part precisely because it's the right thing to do, even though the First Amendment as a technical legal matter doesn't require it. So this idea of the everyday First Amendment, this idea that, yeah, there's this technical understanding of the First Amendment that people like Tom and I worry over, so forth and so on, but there's also this other understanding, this sort of everyday understanding that everybody has, that free speech is just a good thing and we ought to be promoting it. That I think is a very powerful idea and it ends up shaping a lot of conversations we have about free speech, even when we don't know it. Thank you very much. That, that was a great response to the question. Um, and I'm also interested to know, the, the you, you, you sort of categorize or divide from Supreme Court's free speech decisions into three eras before 1919, from 1919 to 1963, and then afterwards. What was the basis for this classification and how do they differ? What, did, what is the major difference between these three eras? Yeah, so Tom and I faced a challenge in figuring out how to organize this book. Um, and one of the challenges is that on one hand, um, you can talk about different areas uh, like libel, commercial speech, obscenity, so forth and so on. So you could talk about specific doctrines and we'll have more to say about that later in this interview, I'm sure. But there's also a chronological component to it. That is, the Supreme Court didn't always think about free speech in the same way. So in trying to figure out the evolution of the court's thinking, um, what we recognized was that you could divide the court's thinking into three major time periods. Now, it's not as if a switch gets thrown at every one of these points and as if things are completely transformed overnight. But I'm confident that this is a pretty good division of, of how things um, unfolded. So prior to 1919, the picture is pretty clear. The Supreme Court just doesn't think the First Amendment means very much. Um, there are very few cases decided under the First Amendment. And the vast majority of the cases that are decided under the First Amendment go the government's way. To the degree there was any right to freedom of expression prior to 1919, it was a pretty anemic, fragile right uh, indeed. So here we start the history of the First Amendment basically with the First Amendment really not meaning much and not affording very much protection. In 1919, a really important thing happens. Oliver Wendell Holmes, Supreme Court Justice, had been a skeptic of free speech. But in 1919, he changed his mind. Um, a variety of people had been talking to him. They had been arguing with him about his position on free of ex freedom of expression, and he simply changed his mind. And in a case, uh, United States versus Abrams, he wrote a dissent that really sort of um, gave us the marketplace of ideas uh, concept. And um, it really changed the trajectory. He started to change the trajectory of um, First Amendment jurisprudence. So from 1919 to 1963, what we see is the court affording more and more protection to free expression. We also see the court starting to recognize that you can't talk about freedom of expression as one thing because there are lots of different kinds of speech. There's 
commercial speech, there are libel concerns, there's obscenity, there's all sorts of stuff. So we see the court starting to worry about categories, and we'll talk more about that later, I'm sure. But from 1919 to 1963, we see the court gravitating toward a more protective approach. Now, we can't say it was a genuinely protective approach because there are too many hiccups along the way. The biggest hiccup um, is, is um, concerns about communism and the whole Red Scare phenomenon. And frankly, we'll talk more about this, I'm sure, too. But, but the court compromised its free speech principles very often when the concern was speech that related to the promotion of communism. So 1919 to 1963, we see more protection, but we also see areas where the court really abandons the principle and doesn't serve it very well. Then in 1964, we get the Supreme Court's opinion in uh, New York Times versus Sullivan. It's actually a libel case. But Sullivan really changes the trajectory of the court's jurisprudence. After Sullivan, the court becomes strenuously protective of free speech. The categories that the court is, starts, has recognized become clearer and firmer and they have better shape. As a general proposition, the court becomes, uh, starts to move toward what Tom has described as an almost absolutist approach to, uh, to freedom of expression. There are some exceptions to this. Um, for example, free speech in K-12, uh, in the K-12 environment, didn't fare so well uh, in the, under the court recently. But in general, from 1964 onward, what we see is the free speech jurisprudence we have now, which is a um, free speech jurisprudence that is very broadly protective. And if I may, let me add one more note. One of the things that's interesting about it is in many ways, for most of its history since 1964, free speech also turned out to be a nonpartisan issue. That is, both the liberal justices and the conservative justices tended to agree about the importance of protecting free speech. So you have great free speech expression, or great free speech opinions from William Brennan, one of the most liberal members of, in the history of the court. And you have great First Amendment decisions from justices like uh, William Rehnquist and um, Antonin Scalia, two of the most conservative members in the history of the court. So one of the other things that was it's interesting in this post-1963 period is you also see some agreement between and among members of the court that this is a universal value that matters to everybody. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Uh, and you did mention that uh, the 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 idea of free speech is very much affiliated with government's efforts to suppress uh, communism or the rise of communism or the Red Scare. That's something again which was really interesting to me when I was reading the book, and I'm keen uh, to know more about that. Tom, if you could comment on that one more. Well, yeah, just in, to summarize, because I think Lynn said it very well. So uh, particularly in the 1950s in the United States, the so-called Red Scare, uh, we had a particular sen senator uh, from Wisconsin, um, Senator Joe McCarthy, who very much was attempting to find, identify, and expel um, citizens in the United States, particularly if they were working in the governments, the, state, the United States Department of State, for example. And this was part of the Red Scare. And um, uh, up until that time, the court, as Lynn has said, in the 30s and 40s um, and early 50s, really was very deferential to the government's um, 
regulation or statutes that had preconditions, uh, oath requirements, for example, for uh, public school teachers or other publicly held offices. Uh, but it was um, in, uh, in the middle of the 1950s where Senator McCarthy was publicly censured. And and that was the point where the red scare started to uh, dissipate. Um, uh, but during this period of time, the court had great deference to regulations when it came to threats or perceptions of of communists in the United States. Um, I think most of those cases, Lynn, today would be considered uh, those pre um, cases. Um, would be considered uh, um, not precedent to follow. Because as Lynn said, the robustness and the interpretation of our First Amendment has really opened up the aperture of, of uh, free speech rights. And uh, I think those cases that were requiring uh, oaths to be taken, that they were not communists or, or deniers, that they weren't communists, uh, would now fall within free speech protections, quite frankly. Uh, there is also um, another era that we see in this uh, characterization of the three phases of the court's jurisprudence, where if it's a national security issue, if it's a, a matter of we're in the middle of a war, the court seems to give more deference to the executive branch, to the president uh, as commander in chief to try to manage that. But outside those unique uh, uh, topics of national security or we're at war, the president should be the commander in chief, not the court. Um, uh, the First Amendment speech rights have been expanded with those exceptions of Red Scare, Red Scare and or national security or war efforts. And uh, in your book, you talk about the categorical approach to First Amendment doctrine. Uh, so, Lynn, what, what does that mean and why and how did the court go about that approach to help this for sure. uh, speech? Sure. Yeah. If you think about it for a minute, this just kind of makes sense. It, the, the court pretty quickly discovered that a unitary free speech principle wasn't going to work because different kinds of speech present different kinds of threats. They present different kinds of issues. They have different kinds of value. They may deserve different kinds of protection. So the court began thinking about speech by reference to different categories, um, political speech, commercial speech, obscene speech, libelous speech, for example. And as a result, you know, I, I very often say to my students, um, we don't have a First Amendment doctrine. We have a collection of different First Amendment doctrines. Um, and I think that's actually the right way to go. Um, and it might be helpful if I if I gave you, an, if I focused in on one of the uh, examples, like a category like libel. So think of, if you think about it, libel presents a unique problem. On one hand, we have the value of free speech and free expression. On the other hand, we have the value of protecting a person's reputation. And the question is, how do we develop a doctrine that appropriately accommodates both of those two values when they seem to stand in conflict and in tension? And um, at the beginning of the court's thinking about this, libel law was very, very friendly to the plaintiff. It was actually very easy to prove a libel case and to recover damages. So the, the thumb was pretty heavily on the side of the scale favor uh, protection of reputation. But the closer the court looked at that, the more it realized that that just didn't afford enough protection to free expression. So over time, the court has granted more and more protection to free expression in the context of, of libel. Um, for example, now as a matter of constitutional law, the plaintiff has to prove that the statement that the defendant made was a false statement. Of course, um, the uh, a true statement can hurt your reputation too. In fact, a true statement might hurt your reputation worse than a false one does. But the Supreme Court held that you can't have a libel claim based on a true statement that would be inconsistent with free speech. 
And then in the Sullivan case that I've referenced earlier, New York Times versus Sullivan, the court also began to distinguish between different types of libel plaintiffs. So for example, a libel plaintiff who is a government official, who is a public official, um, under the court's current jurisprudence, has a much harder time proving their case. In essence, they have to prove that the defendant knowingly lied about them, and they have to prove that by clear and convincing evidence. So what's happened over time, as the court has, within the category of libel, thought about how appropriately to balance the competing concerns here, the court has arrived at a pretty complicated body of law, and it's that's just a complicated body of law that applies within the category of libel, putting aside all the other categories um, that are there uh, that are there as well. I think the court has largely gotten this right. I think the the idea that categories uh, that are required, that different kinds of speech require different kinds of uh, approaches, I think that's all right. But the court has run into some areas where it's really struggled to figure out what to do within a particular category. Is is libel one of them or? Well, I think it, it, it has certainly struggled in libel, but I think campaign finance and commercial mm. speech would probably be um, better examples. Um, yeah. With respect, think about commercial speech for a moment. This is this is any ad. This is any speech that invites somebody into a commercial transaction, like for example, an advertisement. So on one hand, commercial speech includes things like an ad for a washing machine. Now, an ad for a washing machine doesn't seem to have much to do with the core of free speech protections. It doesn't seem to have much to do with political speech. It doesn't seem to have much to do with our function as citizens within a democracy. Uh, it's an ad for a washing machine, right? And it doesn't seem like it should get a tremendous amount um, of protection. Um, on the other hand, what about an ad that sells books? Um, an ad, for example, that promotes a really fabulous book, like the one Tom and I wrote. Or uh, what about an ad that offers legal services or an ad that offers a, pro a product that facilitates the exercise of another right, like the right to use contraception? Those things, those kinds of ads, those kinds of commercial speech, they all seem very close to the core of the First Amendment. So the question becomes, how does the court adopt a rule, right? One rule for commercial speech that's going to take into account things that are as different as an ad for a washing machine on one hand and an ad for legal services to help you engage in political activities on the other. It's very, very hard. And the court has really struggled in that area. And we talk about that in the book. Um, with respect to campaign finance, we see a somewhat different kind uh, of problem. On one hand, contributing funds to support issues and candidates that we care about seems to lie at the heart of First Amendment protection. Political spending is very much a form of political expression. But on the other hand, money poses threats of corruption and the appearance of corruption that other forms of speech simply don't. And vast spending by small numbers of individuals or entities can skew the political process um, in dangerous ways and can threaten our democracy. So figuring out how to accommodate those competing concerns, again, it's very, very challenging. Um, and the court's efforts to do that, for example, in the campaign finance area, reflect just how challenging it is. And in fact, in the book, uh, we question whether in the end, the court has gotten things right, uh, particularly with respect to campaign finance. If I might just add uh, to, to supplement uh, Lynn's uh, summary, on campaign finance, it, it's basically the court says that all of those regulations, be they state or federal, are unconstitutional under the First Amendment speech clause unless you can show a direct quid pro quo, a bribe, as we might call it. Um, but other than that, they are not letting the government regulate. And, and this is causing a terrific consternation here in the United States about uh, uh, unregulated uh, campaign contributions or sometimes dirty money involved in that. We have a whole chapter on this uh, called the, the Hard Cases since 19, uh, uh, 
of 64, where where uh, we really discuss this categorization or classification. But here are a, a few areas like campaign finance uh, where where the court has really had to, as Lynn said, struggle with trying to uh, accomplish some different values. And on campaign finance, they came out very hard in favor of not letting the government regulate spending for businesses, corporations, or unions in this country. You have to show that old-fashioned quid pro quo bribe money in the pocket before I think they'll let the uh, legislation uh, withstand constitutional scrutiny. And another really, really topical issue is um, free speech in academia or academic freedom. How is it different from free speech in, let's say, other settings? And when we talk about academic freedom or free speech, whose freedom are we talking about here? Excellent question. Uh, many of us, I think, would would answer your question by saying that academic freedom, that term, is is probably or arguably is a subset within the ambit uh, of uh, of the free speech uh, protection that we've just been talking about. It's related to the educational institutions, the academy. Um, and it's and it's interesting because those of us uh, in, in university life or uh, even in uh, lower grades uh, think that as teachers or scholars who publish thoughts, um, we have academic freedom. Uh, the Supreme Court has not come down clearly in embracing a constitutionally protected area called academic freedom. There are a number of cases, uh, early cases, uh, uh, written by Justice Brennan, Justice Douglas, Justice Frankfurter, with great rhetorical flourish about the importance of freedom in the classroom or freedom for scholarship. But the court itself has not decided clearly what that really means and to what extent it will will bring it in the ambit of uh, a subcategory of academic freedom. Uh, Let me break that down a little bit, um, because you asked a question earlier about K through 12. So the court, the the court has basically said that faculty and students and institutions arguably have academic freedom rights. Um, In Tinker versus Des Moines uh, School District 1969 was the very first broad brush, bold decision by the court, which said that these were high school students in uh, in Des Moines, Iowa. They had a First Amendment speech right when they came to school with a black armband on their um, um, uh, arm protesting the Vietnam War. Um, now, this was symbolic speech, right? It was not verbal. It was written on a, or, or the black armband was vis- visualizing that. So here we have a K through 12. And the court said that 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 symbolic speech was protected even at these younger, more tender ages of school children, um, uh, unless the armband in this case was found to be disruptive or was going to substantially interfere with the educational mission and the teaching of those students. Uh, or the court said, uh, if it also that those armbands uh, were impinging on other students' rights. Uh, so that's how a very bold, expansive doctrine came out of Tinker. The court has backed away from that in, in uh, other subsequent cases a bit. Um, but what we can say with pretty per, pretty much clarity here is the younger the student and the conduct that's being exhibited, uh, the more regulation the court is likely to let the school or the school district have, particularly if there's any evidence of disruption by reason of or a substantial interference. They, they tend not so much to focus on that second prong of tinker which was uh, Im- impinging on the rights of other students. But as you go up the uh, academic uh, educational institution scale, and we see students in college or, or graduate school, the court is going to give more deference to the individual's First Amendment rights um, 
in that case. And we've had a, a recent case from the Supreme Court last year where a, a, a freshman, I think, in high school uh, trying out for the cheerleading uh, uh, team uh, and, and didn't make it and got very upset and went on social media and, and blasted the school and the officials in very derogatory and unpleasant terms. Uh, she was disciplined. Um, um, and she sued, uh, said this was a retribution, her speech, and the Supreme Court uh, held in her favor, even though the conduct was not in the classroom or was off the, uh, off the campus. So there is a, a, a clear modicum of protection for students, depending upon the tenderness of the age and the maturity of the student, whether on-campus speech or off-campus speech. Um, with regard to faculty, um, I think it's fair to say that there's a lot of ambiguity here. Um, I know myself and other colleagues in the academy uh, believe that academic freedom is sacrosanct, that it, of course we have it, um, particularly in our teaching and in our scholarship. The court has not been clear about that. Uh, my reading of the cases suggests that if this court, the present Supreme Court, took that issue of academic freedom up, given the consternation and conflicts about how robust or how not robust free speech is on campuses, I think the court might well limit this, uh, this sacred doctrine of academic freedom to teaching in the classroom and scholarship and publication. But faculty do a lot more beyond teaching in the classroom, teaching in the hallways, teaching in our office, um, and, and beyond our, our peer scholarship that gets published like our book uh, has by Cambridge University Press. Uh, we sit on university committees. Uh, we sit in university faculty senates. It's not clear to me that the speech that faculty engage in in those other venues will be protected by this Supreme Court. So it's a fragile academic freedom doctrine that we're, we're, we're talking about. Um, um, and it's not clear. I think there would be a division in the court, certainly not unanimous, even though great rhetorical flourishes by earlier justices on the court, the importance of academic freedom for faculty and tinker, of course, through uh, its, its 1969 decision for students. And uh, it what you were saying, which reminded me of a case a few months ago, there was this professor, I don't remember where, uh, he was an adjacent professor, um, casual academics, who was touching, teaching history of arts. And in one of the sessions, he showed a picture of Prophet Muhammad from yeah. a manuscript, from Islamic manuscript. And I think it was one, one Muslim student was offended, complained, but in Islam, there has never been a blanket ban on showing the picture of Prophet Muhammad. And he was suspended. I think he decided he or she, I don't know, unfortunately remember the name, decided to take the court uh, to take the case to the court. I have no idea what happened, but I'm keen to follow up. But that again reminded me of this whole idea of academic freedom. And also, and this, I guess, is a, a apt way to bring this um, interview to, a, to an end. And I'd like to get both your opinions. Do you think that there is a freedom of speech crisis in academia, higher education, or is it simply a culture war, which is more, let's say, uh, light than heat. Well, Lynn and I probably ought to both comment on that. Lynn, why don't you take the lead? Because uh, there's a lot of discussion in the United States about our college campuses today, and whether there's political correctness or whether there's uh, free speech. Um, uh, Lynn, what, what's it look like at the University of Michigan? Well, I, my own take on this, you know, I, I participated not too long ago in a um, uh, in a symposium um, put on by a law school, uh, and it was on on exactly the theme that you're raising. Uh, it, it was focused on law schools, but the question was around the crisis of free speech in higher education. And almost to a person, the people who participated in the symposium, including me, um, resisted the idea that there's anything like a crisis. Um, the, the certainly there are instances where uh, speech is challenged and where um, censorship happens in ways that are uncomfortable or unpleasant for us. But when you compare it to the Red Scare era, it is nothing. Uh, it is nothing like that. 
Um, a lot of the censorship that we end up talking about is actually self-censorship on the way on the part of students, students who are worried that their peers won't like what they say. Uh, and so they hold back and, and hesitate <laughs> to say it. I don't think that makes for a free speech crisis. I think it makes for an issue that you have to manage. But I think the idea that it's a free speech crisis is, is way, way overblown. So I think that we have, I think that there are genuine and important free speech issues that um, wait for us in the future. Um, but I don't think most of those important and interesting issues have very much to do with what's going on in classrooms right now. I think they have much more to do with what's going on uh, in government where there seems to be a wholesale belief that it's okay to lie. Um, one of the striking things that happened this week is the former president of the United States was essentially indicted for um, uh, persuading people to engage in unlawful acts by manipulating them through lies. And the first thing his lawyers said was, um, well, he's got a First Amendment right. And I got news for them. Um, <laughs> and, and it's not good news. Uh, if I walk into a bank and, and try and rob it, um, the fact that I say, give me money and put it in the bag, the fact that I use words uh, doesn't give me a First Amendment defense. If I blackmail somebody, I don't have a First Amendment defense because I did it through words. If I use extortion, I don't have a First Amendment defense because I used it through words. And there seems to have been a view in Washington over the past few years, including held by prominent lawyers like Rudy Giuliani, that you can just lie about anything you want without consequence. And the Supreme Court has never held that to be the case, I think would not hold that to be the case. And I think it may very well be that the next great frontier uh, for First Amendment speech is going to be around lying uh, by public officials. Um, but I don't think it's going to be about the little skirmishes that we see happen on college campuses that are frankly, I think, very much a part of the learning process and are very much a part of campus life and that present challenges that we have to navigate. But um, at the end of the day, I don't think any of those things are threats to the republic in the same way that lying public officials are. I, I would just add, I, I agree completely with Lynn's uh, uh, analysis. Um, and, and the example he gave goes back to our earlier conversation in this interview podcast, um, when one of the exceptions to free speech is speech incident to a crime. And Lynn gave some examples, and, and that needs to be very clear. I, I was struck, Lynn, last night when there was commentary on all of our national television shows uh, with regard to the most recent indictment of, of the former president, Donald Trump. Um, and uh, his, his lawyers um, were clearly um, surprised by the way the indictment was uh, drafted. Um, the indictment is actually very conservative, uh, very practical, very narrow. And they write in the first paragraph, it, it notes this First Amendment speech defense that is attempted to be made. And they took the First Amendment right out of the case because they didn't bring a charge like the Trump uh, legal team thought was going to be sedition or, or uh, insurrection. All of that was taken out. And so the talking points we heard last night were really the speech they were going to give on the indictment they thought was going to come down that didn't come down. This is a case of whether provable, we'll see, beyond a reasonable doubt, we'll see, were these words, um, these misrepresentations, speech incident to a crime, and then, of course, you have to prove the crime, in this case, a, a fraud on the American people, fraud on the Congress, a fraud on, on, on the voters. I also want to go back and mention um, the, the, the classroom. I said, I think the court would come down um, narrowly holding that academic freedom is, is in fact a First Amendment protection if the uh, speech is in the classroom. But there's a caveat there. 
I think the speech has to be germane or relevant to the course material itself. Uh, for example, um, I think if a faculty member came into the classroom, um, an organic chemistry class, for example, and had a T-shirt on that said, I love Donald Trump or I love Joe Biden, um, would that faculty member have a First Amendment right to wear that T-shirt in the classroom? And I think an argument could be made, no. Uh, the, the discussion that is going to ensue about the T-shirt or the T-shirt symbolism um, is not relevant or germane to what the students signed up for and what they're paying tuition for. You can wear the T-shirt out in the hallway or anywhere else, but inside the classroom, you have a compelled, that's compelled speech. Students are required to take the class or at least in the class, you have a power dominant situation by the faculty member who's gonna grade those students. So the students may self, as we mentioned earlier, may, may self censor because this is the person who's sitting and standing in front of me with a very provocative statement and or t-shirt that I disagree with, but I can't counter it because of the dominance or power. So that goes to the relevancy and the germaneness of the speech or the symbolic speech in the classroom to the course itself. Otherwise, I think you run into a, a, compel, a compelled speech um, incident. Um, so again, I think if we have academic freedom in the classroom approved by the Supreme Court, it will be very narrowly drawn for uh, germane relevant teaching in the classroom and uh, relevant scholarship. Um, and beyond that, I don't think the court is, is likely to have a majority in support of those academic faculty rights. Uh, thank you both very much. But I always ask this question as the last one. Is there any other project you're currently working on? Any books that might be around the horizon? Well, I just, uh, just uh, last week uh, sent a, a book proposal in for a, a book uh, um, titled loosely, A Course I Teach. Uh, and the course is the U.S. Presidency power, responsibility, and accountability. In short, uh, a, a comprehensive scholarly uh, treatment of Article II of our Constitution, which is the power of the executive uh, in our government here. And um, we have, uh, <laughs> Lynn knows throughout history and particularly contemporaneous to this conversation, a lot of examples where one can argue how much power, all power, limited power, what are the responsibilities? And when a president goes rogue or abuses his or her power, what is the accountability? So that's a book I've just started uh, um, started to write. And how about you, Len? So, um, you know, I really don't, uh, I don't like writing books, to be perfectly honest with you. <laughs> Um, I, I always but he say does that, a great job of it. I always say that writing a book is like having a friend who greets you every morning saying, what are you going to do to do for me today? Um, and um, I tend to like shorter writing projects. So um, I've got a bunch of articles in various stages of disrepair uh, on a variety of different subjects, many of them on very practical litigation issues, a few of them more theoretical. If anybody's interested in following my writing, um, I have a website, um, lenniehoff.com, unimaginatively named, um, where I just put everything I write from small op-eds to longer theoretical pieces. So um, if, uh, if anybody wants to know what else is knocking around in my empty head, um, that's a pretty good place to go. And um, the, the articles are largely linked there or very, at a minimum cited. So right now I'm doing mostly smaller projects, but um, I'm sure there's another book or two in me before I'm I'm done. I just have to uh, get a better attitude about them. <laughs> Thomas, and thank you very, very much for taking the time to talk with us on New, New Books Network. Thank Sorry. you for having us. Much.